it's funny, whenever, whenever I speak, it's usually, you know, a few months' time uh, when I get to speak the next time. And so usually when I speak, I just kind of throw up on you guys, whatever the Lord is processing in me. <laughs> so consider yourself warned, okay? Um, no, but I've, I've really been, <clears throat> goodness, probably for the past year or so, I, I've really been... Um, there's just been some things uh, resonating and percolating in me. It actually started, as I said, a little over a year ago. Have you ever had just somebody say something and like in a message or on a podcast or just something that just stuck with you that you didn't hear anything else they said, but you got stuck on that one thing because it just hit you square, square in the spirit, right? And it, it just messed with you, messed with you. Well, <clears throat> I, heard a, I heard a message from a speaker as I said, a little over a year ago. And he said this, uh, God is doing a new thing. He's not doing the next thing. God is doing a new thing. He's not doing the next thing. I didn't hear anything else that man said throughout the rest of the message, but I just got stuck on that. And it's been sitting in me for so long and the Lord's just been unpacking things to me. And uh, today I really want to talk to you about God is doing a new thing globally, but he's also doing a new thing here. He is doing a new thing. You see, if God is doing the next thing, if God is doing the next thing, then what he did before is relevant to the next thing that he's doing. But if he's doing a new thing, you may not have all the answers, you probably don't have all the T's crossed, all the I's dotted. There's probably a lot of uncertainty. But there's one thing that you know for sure, is that when God is doing a new thing, you can't stay where you're at. You have to get up and go. Just like Abraham, right? Abraham, come out from your people to a, to a new land that I will show you. That was Abraham's first encounter with God. But he obeyed. <laughs> so, Today I want to talk to you about what to do, how to appropriate ourselves when God is doing a new thing. Can we pray this morning? Lord, speak to us. Our hearts are open. Our ears are open. Lord, reveal your heart to us. Reveal your heart for your people. Reveal your heart for, this, for, for our community. Reveal your heart for this church. And Lord, shed a little bit more light on us so, Lord, that we can understand Perceive your heart on how to bring heaven to earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, if you've got your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew 9 to start off with. Matthew 9, we'll start off in verse 17. Regarding doing, uh, when, God is, when God is doing a new thing, Jesus actually took a few verses to zero in on this. Um, and it, it honestly has deep, deep, profound implications uh, with, what he, with what he was talking about. And he used the analogy of wineskins. Um, so today we're going to be talking about drinking wine, right? On that note, I'll drink to that. Um, so you there, Matthew nine seventeen? All right, well, just to give you a little bit of context, um, John the Baptist uh, was the forerunner of Jesus. Um, Jesus referred to him as the greatest of all the, of all the prophets. 
Um, John had his disciples, Jesus had his disciples, and we find this conversation between John's disciples and Jesus. They come to him and they say, Jesus, we fast, the Pharisees fast, you guys don't fast. What gives, right? Um, And Jesus says, well, they don't fast because they have me. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he says they have me. Because here's the idea. In the law, in the Old Testament, fasting gave the implication or, or suggested the idea of mourning, of sadness, of lamenting. And Jesus was saying, why would, why would my disciples lament or mourn when they have me? Right? That's what, that's what he was saying. But then he also said, there will come a time when I'm gone where they will fast. Okay? And so Jesus answers this question about fasting with kind of a part A and part B. What I, just show, what I just shared with you, that's part A. And then Jesus goes into this part B where he starts talking about, oh, by the way, you know, if you have a, if you have a hole in your pants and you probably don't put like a new patch on the hole because if you do, it's just gonna rip. It's gonna make it worse. And then he talked about wineskins, putting new, new wine in old wineskins. If you do it, it'll burst and everything's gonna be a big mess and yada, 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 okay? So here we are, Matthew 9, 17. It says, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into, into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, here's what Jesus is referring to here, because remember, the original question was about, okay, fasting. Why don't you do it? So he answered that, but then through this, Jesus saw an opportune moment to really share through an analogy of wine and wineskins of what God was doing, okay? Jesus, Jesus ultimately through this is referring to the fresh move of God of shifting from the law, Old Testament law, Mosaic law, to grace. Because ultimately, Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus came so that he would reveal the Father and that he would destroy the works of the devil. And also that he would be the first among many, first among the brethren, first among you, first among me, okay? He would be the first. So Jesus is really honing in, zeroing in on, okay, there's a shift right now. There is a fresh move of God. We are moving from law to grace, okay? The wine, the analogy of wine, represents the fresh move of God, and the wine skin represents the previous system or the previous move of God, which was the law. Okay? Now, a couple of things to note here in in just in context with the character of God and, and, and how he and how he works. When there is a fresh move of God, when God is doing a new thing. He doesn't devalue, disregard, or dismantle what he's done before. Okay? For instance, did Jesus, what did Jesus say about the law and the prophets? That he came to what? Fulfill the law and the prophets. There's a shift happening right now, as Jesus is, is revealing. There's a shift from the law to grace. Jesus is not saying, well, here's the law. Boop, just kick it out the window, right? Kick it out the door. No, he's saying, no, I came to fulfill that. That has led to this. 
this is where we're going now. Okay, you follow me? So with Jesus, let me say it like this. The old, the old way, the old system always makes room or makes way. It charts out a way for the new move of God. Okay? And, and simply this, the law just had a different purpose. The law had a different purpose. Every move of God has a specific purpose. And the other thing that Jesus mentioned here <clears throat> is that, and this is equally important, is that the fresh move of God, the wine, cannot be mixed with the old, the wineskin. Why? Well, when you look at the analogy, wine, putting fresh wine, fresh new wine into a wineskin, what happens is the fresh wine ferments and it causes the skin to expand, okay? Now, the skin can't expand for forever. It has a limit, and the limit is right before it bursts, right before it breaks, and then everything within it just falls out, spills, okay? So that's why Jesus is saying you have uh, the fresh move of God cannot be mixed with what has, with, with the old system, with what has, what has come before. They were never purposed for that. Um, and really what Jesus is talking about right here, he's talking about discerning seasons and times. Discerning seasons and times, okay? Matthew eleven seventeen. 17, again, the Pharisees came to Jesus, questioning him, um, having, taking issue with John the Baptist and how he conducted his ministry and also taking issue with Jesus with how he conducted his ministry. They were saying, well, uh, well, well, well John... Uh, didn't eat, didn't eat with sinners and all this kind of stuff, and he was just kind of his own guy. But then they said, well, Jesus eats with sinners, and you're kind of doing your own thing, and they had problems with both. And so Jesus basically responds to them and says, well, John, John sang the dirge. You know what the dirge is? It's a funeral song. John sang the dirge, and you didn't mourn. I played the flute, and you didn't dance. The flute, the flute is a very bright Celebrate, uh, celebrative instrument. A lot of times in Jewish culture, they would actually use flutes during uh, weddings, during weddings. So John sang the funeral song, the dirge. Jesus sang the wedding song, okay? Ultimately, Jesus is saying to them, you didn't respond the right way in the right season, in the right time. The sons of Issachar, according to 1 Chronicles 12, says that the, the sons of Issachar understood the times and what Israel should do in those times. Again, Matthew 16, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, show us a sign. Give us some proof. And Jesus responds and he's, he's telling them, you look at the sky in the evening and if it's red, it, it, you can predict what it's gonna be like the next day. And he gives these different examples and he says, there's signs all around you but you don't know how to discern the times because you don't know what time it is. See, when there is a fresh move of God, when God is doing something new, are you catching it? Are you catching it? Hosea 4.6 says this, for my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Okay, that word knowledge in the Hebrew, it's not talking about academics. 
It's not talking about information that you get from Google or from Wikipedia or from, from an encyclopedia. Okay? It's not just that. It's not that kind of knowledge. Knowledge in Hosea 4 6 refers to discernment and understanding. It's the type of knowledge or wisdom that God has. It means to have his perception. So in other words, my, Hosea is saying, my people are destroyed because they don't know what God is saying. They don't know what God is saying. Matthew 4.4, 4, you guys remember the story where Jesus is tempted by, by Satan, right? Satan says, hey, you know, the, the first temptation where he says, um, if you are the son of God, you can turn this stone into bread. Jesus responds to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, or some versions say that comes out of the mouth, out of, the mouth of God. Okay, it's interesting that word proceed, or if your version says comes, the Greek word there is actually, uh, it has a specific tense. It's present tense. Present tense means it's ongoing. So really what Jesus is saying is, man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every current word that is coming out of the mouth of God. Every ongoing word that is coming out of the mouth of God. In other words, it's not just about what God has said. It's about what is he saying today. That's what gives life. That's what gives fresh life. Every fresh move of God ushers in fresh life. You know, when it comes to scripture, and it's interesting just sometimes how we can, uh, how we can limit God based off of what this says. Okay? God is his word. But his word, this Bible, doesn't restrict or limit God. It reveals him. Let me give you an example. If you, ha- you have the nine gifts of the spirit, okay? That doesn't mean that's the only way or that's just how God works, okay? To where... Okay, for example, I remember hearing stories about uh, people when they were baptized, when they were baptized in the in the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. How the first language that they spoke when they uttered the spiritual language was Chinese. Okay? You know, people look at that and say, well, that's of the devil. Well, not really, because when, it was, when everything was translated or charted out, they were speaking the praises of God. I'm sorry, but the devil doesn't praise God. <laughs> okay? So when it comes to what's in here, the lists and things like that that are in here, it's not a limitation on who God is. It simply just reveals more of his nature and more of his character. Okay? We will never be able to fully exhaust what's in here because we will never be able to fully exhaust him. Okay, lastly, everything in our lives, all our successes are directly connected to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
not to doctrine, not to your theology, but to the Holy Spirit. And, and our response to his movement. Likewise, our failures often reveal our disconnection to his promptings or simply that we haven't built a strong history with him. There's a, I, fully, I fully believe in the power of impartation, laying on of hands, and imparting spiritual uh, gifts and anointing to men and women. Um, but here's, here's the thing. A lot of times when it comes to impartation, or simply if, if somebody just walks up to a pastor or to an evangelist or to anybody and they just say, will you, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? A lot of times really what they're doing is, what they're asking is, I want what you have. I want what you have. Okay? With every, with every person who is heavily anointed in their life, who walks with a heavy anointing of the Holy Spirit in their life, you have to realize the common denominator between all of them is this one thing, and that's history with God. Time with God. Time with being in his presence. Pursuing him, exploring, enjoying, worship, being in his presence. Right? You see... people who have a heavy anointing in their life, they can impart certain things to you. They can, they can impart spiritual gifts. They can pray over you and impart things to you. But there's one thing they can't give you, and that's their history. Folks, when it comes to, when it comes to kingdom influence, when it comes to, as the Bible says, that the early church... Uh, the apostles in the book of Acts, that they turned the world upside down. It all came from just them being with Jesus. It came from a history of a relationship. All right, everything in our lives hinges on our relationship with the Holy Spirit and our response to his movement. Let me talk a little bit more about the wineskin. Let me give you a few examples. Okay, so we talked about that the wine is the fresh move of God, right? The wineskin, wineskin. <clears throat> the thing about uh, the wineskin is you almost have to think of it as not a, not a limiter, not, not a controller, but it's, it's when you pour wine into the wineskin, it, it, it contains it, it gathers it. Almost think of it as like, um, like banks, uh, like banks on, on the side of a river, okay? It helps, it helps um, corral the power of the river. Um, it, helps maintain, it helps maintain the river, okay? So when it comes to wineskins, here's a, a few examples. Um, doctrine and theology can be a wineskin, all right? Uh, church tra- traditions that, that we have here and elsewhere, uh, you know, if we have 20 minutes of worship, that's wineskin. If you have two hours of worship, that's a wineskin, <laughs> all right? If you have a 30-minute sermon or an hour-long sermon, both are wineskins. Um, organizational structure, okay? That, that can be a wineskin. Um, even when it comes to 
worship and instruments used. Uh, that can be a wine, musical styles for worship. That, that can be a wineskin. Um, specific podcasts, uh, preachers, authors that we, that we love to listen to or that we love to read. Those can all be wineskins, okay? Um, different events that, that happen, you know, uh, like Easter service or a Christmas service or a Thanksgiving service. Those can all be wineskins. Um, another one, this, this is a big one, um, seeing a pastor for counseling, okay? That can be a wineskin, all right? Um, here's the important thing about wineskins. They're important because they bring structure, okay? And, and we need structure. If we didn't have structure, this, this roof would fall on top of us, okay? So we need structure. But the point is this. The wineskin is not the treasure. We're not trying to preserve the wineskin. We are wanting to preserve the wine, which is the fresh move of God. The wine is the goal. The wine is the treasure. We need to give attention to the wineskin. We need to care for the wineskin, but only because it hosts the wine. Follow me? Our goal is not to stand on the banks of the river and watch the fresh move of God pass us by. We need to jump in the river and go for a swim. (laughs) All the events, all the traditions, all the instruments, all the structure, all the wineskins that we have are wonderful and, and good, but they all lead to something. And sometimes you have to put the wineskins aside to see what you really have. Sometimes, sometimes you have to turn off the worship album to discover the song of the Lord that he's given you for the time and the season that you're in and for you to sing it out, for you to sing out your song, not to sing out somebody else's song. kind of a funny example, but I'll give you an example of this. The past six or seven months, um, we've been drummerless. (laughs) And uh, for our worship team, uh, it's, it's been, it's been a little bit challenging uh, on the, on the music side, on the music side of things, because drums are such a dynamic instrument. You can, you can go from a really soft, sweet moment, and by just a few hits on the toms that you're just like in this huge, big moment. So drums can take, can take the direction of whatever's happening anywhere at any, at any moment really quick. Um, and we found ourselves having conversations like, man, we're really missing drums. Man, we're really missing drums. And the Lord really dealt, me with, dealt with me on that. He really dealt with me on that because sometimes you get trapped by the trappings, <laughs> right? When we find ourselves handicapped, when our wineskin goes missing, then we're no longer sensitive to tender moments with the Lord. Sometimes the wineskin becomes the wine. 
And it all has to do with just the position of your heart. It really does. It has everything to do with the position of your heart and where your worship belongs. And I, uh, I'll show you this in just a minute here, but in Scripture, there's, there's, there's a unique connection between three very big, very big topics. Uh, one is fear, the second is worship, and the third is trust. Fear, worship, and trust. What you fear will influence what you worship. What you worship will be proven by what you trust. And God is looking for people to trust him. Um, has, has anybody ever experienced uh, the silent treatment from God? <laughs> Delayed answers. You know, you're praying and it just seems like you're not getting anything. Anybody? Or am I the only one? <laughs> Right? Okay. So that happens. That happens in our lives. You see, because delayed answers from God often bring up to the surface issues where we actually mistrust God. It's never, listen, it's never for the purpose of shaming, and it's never for punishment. God never punishes his children for the sake of pointing out your flaws. Okay? The Bible says the Father corrects whom he loves, he corrects, okay? But these moments, these delayed answers, these moments where our trust is challenged is actually an invitation to deeper worship because it's in these moments where we find issues where we can come and lay it out before the Lord and confess those things to him and he can do his best work, his surgery on our hearts, <laughs> surgery within us and shape new things in us and remove the things that, are, that don't need to be there. You see, because the, the Bible says that in John chapter four that God is looking for worshipers. God is looking for worshipers. Isn't it interesting that it says that God, that he's not looking for worship. He's looking for worshipers. He's not an egotist who needs affirmation, okay? He's looking for worshipers because he knows that we always become like whatever it is that we're worshiping. We always become like whatever we worship. Whatever you worship determines what you trust. See, because you can, you, can you can sing all the right songs on Sunday morning, have the right postures of worship, but when you turn to something else, when conflict or a challenge rises up and you don't turn to God first, then your trust area is being challenged. Your trust area is being challenged. And many times, wineskins that we have in our lives become the source. And we go to those First. And thereby, the wineskin replaces the wine. It's not that we can't use, like, for instance, let me just ask you, let me just ask you a question. It's rhetorical, so don't, don't answer. <laughs> How many of you, when a conflict or a challenge, uh, challenge rises up in your life, how many go to Pastor Gary first for counseling instead of the wonderful counselor? 
right? It's, it's easy. It happens all the time. Now, listen. <laughs> Let me just bring a little bit more clarity to this. Does that mean we should never go to Pastor Gary for counseling? Does that mean that we should never get any counsel from anybody? Does that mean that we have, uh, I saw, where's, where's, where's Kathy? Uh, Monty, there you are. We have these awesome classes that we just started that Catherine Monty and Louise Shortel are doing. Does that mean we should just eliminate those? No. That would be foolish. But it's equally as foolish when we start turning to those first. And those in our hearts, those become a replacement for the source. The resource should never replace the source. Let me show you an example of what this is. Um, let's, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Judges chapter 6 with me. Judges chapter 6. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. This is God speaking. He says, Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Okay. If you've read through the book of Judges, if you've read through the Old Testament, um, what would the Israelites do when they would fear these other gods? it would turn into worship. They would always, whenever, when they, whenever they would fear these other gods, it would always turn into worship. I mean, for instance, Baal or Baal. You had the, this god of the Canaanites, uh, Baal, who was considered to be uh, the god of abundance. And oftentimes in Israel's history, uh, when they were experiencing hard times or perhaps things just weren't going correctly, they would turn to Baal. It's even interesting at, at certain times um, in the Old Testament that they would have this dual devotion kind of thing going on where one day they would worship Yahweh and then the rest of the week they would try all the other gods just to keep their options open, I guess. I don't know. But the point is this. Whenever they did that, whenever Israel did that, it was always a point of dis disintegration of who they were their identity as God's people. Because what you fear determines what you worship. Let me show you this in Psalm 115. It says this, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Let me say this again. What you fear influences your worship. And what you worship is proven by what you trust. For example, 
greed. Okay? Um, if you have a fear of going broke, if you have a fear of not having enough, there's a fear of lack. Usually the one thing in our minds that fixes that is what? Money. Greed is often, greed often becomes the false idol that's birthed out of a fear of lack. Same with uh, like a fear of being alone. People jump around from relationship to relationship because they're afraid of being alone. But they haven't harnessed or stuck, stuck through hard times in a specific relationship. They haven't developed that skill because the fear controls them. Let me, let me show you this, okay? So just fo- follow my train of thought here. From Psalm 115, it talks about they have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but they don't see, so forth, so forth, okay? If you become like what you worship, if you're worshiping a false god, can that god see? No. So what happens to your spiritual sight? Can that God hear? No. So what happens to your ability to discern the voice of God, to hear the voice of God? You become like what you worship. That is the potential effect of whatever has your trust, whatever has your worship, you become like. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. You see, if your perspective, if your understanding is stronger than your trust in the Lord, then you will undermine what God has said for your life. Coming back to the wineskins, if we're not careful to refrain from valuing the wineskin as we should the wine, we can start elevating these wineskins to a place of worship. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. You know, a big one, a big one um, is doctrine and theology. We need, we need doctrine. We need theology. I went to school for four years, studied it, learned a lot. And as much as I always come back to that, it is an anchor, it is a pillar that I come back to. I am careful to not limit God to that. Because if you think about it, all doctrine, all theology is based off of people's personal experiences with God. Now, can that get a little shaky? Can that get a little crazy and weird? Yes. (laughs) All the more reason why we need to keep our trust and our worship fixed on him and not on the wineskins. All right. 
Another interesting thing, there's, there's plenty of, another big one is uh, historical movements and powerful moves of God uh, throughout history. A lot of times, uh, you know, you look at revivals like Azusa Street, Azusa Street Revival. You look at the holiness movement in the 1800s. Uh, many more. Um, a lot of times these movements become pinnacles in our memories and we create monuments out of them when they should essentially become platforms for momentum. Because here's the thing. Did you know that, you, did you know that there's, every, to every, every single one of us have been given a measure of faith, right? But Romans 1.17 says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Okay. Corinthians, Paul talks about how we are being transformed into the image of his son through the Holy Spirit from glory to glory. You see, God's, God's, God's concept of bringing a fresh move is not to match what he's done before. It's always to surpass that. He didn't, Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could just get to heaven one day. Folks, our goal, his goal for dying on the cross was not for us just to get to heaven, okay? His goal for dying on the cross was so that through us, heaven could come to earth. Amen. That's why faith to faith, glory to glory, all right? It's easy to start evaluating our successes based around external things. You know, pastors, we do this all the time. You know, how many people showed up? <laughs> you know, one, one, of the things, one of the things that happens with me all the time is um, just the response during worship and how things are going. You know, it, uh, it's almost like you need like two brains <laughs> to, to lead worship because one, I'm paying attention to what the Lord's doing, but at the same time, I'm seeing what's happening in the room and seeing how you all are responding to what he's doing in the room, okay? And I can't tell you how many times, how many times that, uh, you know, after the last song is done, you hit that last chord, and you're just kind of like, uh, well, that kind of fell flat. <laughs> and then Pastor Dan walks in up and he just like, with tears in his eyes, he's like, that was amazing. And he just starts thanking the team, kind of like what you did today. Uh, he just starts thanking the team and like, just thank you so much for ushering in the presence of the Lord. And so I'm sitting there like, yeah, you're welcome. But in my heart, I'm like, oh man, <laughs> did I miss it? <laughs> you know? Because there's just times, there's times where you're wondering, okay, it just seems like it's not working right now. You know? Um, a funny one, you know, be, being a worship leader, being a worship leader, um, a lot of times people, people will say things like this, like, oh, worship was so awesome. It just, it moved me to tears. I cried in worship. And, you know, that's so, that's so right and true because when God is moving, it, it stirs up different emotions in each and every one of us. I've been in situations where I've, I've wept, you know, just uh, being in the presence of the Lord. I've also been in situations where, you know, there's shouting and laughter happening. But it's interesting how we can get stuck on that and we can almost think, oh, I didn't cry in worship today. Well, God must have not been there. It's true though, right? You know, there, there's, there's been situations too where 
I know that, um, you know, people who are used to shouting and very expressive in their praise to God, which is right, the Bible says, to do those things, okay? So that's all right and good. But there's moments where it's very quiet and intimate. And one person can change the whole atmosphere in the room because they're not, they're not, um, they're not comfortable with a quiet moment with the Lord to where they have to shout out to change the dynamic, to change what's happening in the room. And what God meant for that moment all of a sudden changed because somebody else was uncomfortable with what God was wanting to do in that moment. Okay? Let me, let me just point out two things here, okay? With these, with these externals, okay, you can have all the externals. You can have all of them and God not be there. Yet at the same time, you can have none of them. And suddenly be thrust into a holy, intimate moment with God. The question is this. Is your discernment of what God is doing, is it dependent on the external things? Is it dependent on the wineskins? Or do you walk with presence awareness. Remember when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and the heavens opened and the, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit descended on, on Jesus in the form of a dove, right? What's interesting is that it's, it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him and remained. That's key. The Holy Spirit remained. Because up until that point, the Holy Spirit would descend on people. But with Jesus, he remained. Let me ask you, presence awareness is simply this. How would you walk differently throughout your day if you had a bird on your shoulder? Brushing your teeth, making breakfast, driving, buckling your seatbelt. <laughs> You know, going to Starbucks. Everybody's staring at you like you have a bird on your shoulder. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who stare at us because we're peculiar. We're peculiar because we carry something that they want. And this is Paul says, the greatest mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right, let me finish with this. A couple of verses here. Isaiah 43, 18. Really what we've talked about today is the wine and the wineskins, the analogy that Jesus used and how to, how to appropriate ourselves when God is doing a new thing, when God is doing a new thing. Ultimately, at the very center of discovering, discerning, and applying yourself when God is doing a new thing is worship. Worship getting in the presence. But I want to show you these two verses here because there's a couple of verses in the Old Testament where God actually specifically said that he's doing a new thing and he kind of gives some instruction here. The first one is Isaiah 43, 18. It says this, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
It says, do not remember the former things nor consider the things of old. I kind of alluded to this earlier or talked about this earlier, but it's, it's really important to, one, value what God has done in our lives. Remembering what God has done in our lives reminds us of who he is and actually thrusts us into, into worship, okay, and into praise. Okay, at the same time, we cannot put so much value on what God has done to where it keeps us from discovering what he is doing. Okay? Just like just like we talked about in Matthew 4. It's not just about what God has said. It's about what he's saying. What is the current word? We can even start remembering God's work in our lives in the past and look to that as the benchmark and totally miss, totally miss the new thing that God is doing. Eric Hoffer, he was a, he was a philosopher in the 50s, and, an American philosopher in the 50s and 60s. He said this, I just thought it was a brilliant quote. It says, in times of change, it is the learners who inherit the future. The learned usually find themselves equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. Let me say that again. In times of change, it is the learners who inherit the future. The learned usually find themselves equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. Folks, we have to, again, the wineskins must remain wineskins. They're important. They're good, but the treasure is in the wine. Let me read one more to you, Isaiah 42, 10. It says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Okay, we first talked about the first set of instruction is to don't put such heavy value on the former things. Value them, but not to the point where you're missing out on the fresh current thing, the new thing that God is doing. Second, when God is doing a new thing, he tells you it, he reveals it to you, and you know what his instruction is? Sing it. What? Sing it. But I don't sing. I don't know how to sing. I can't sing. I'm not a good singer. Hear me out on this. Every move, every move of God, every fresh move of God, what we call revival, okay, always has a sound attached to it. When you look at the, the story of the Exodus, Israelites coming out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, um, they got to the other side. The Egyptians were, uh, the army was destroyed. Do you know what happened right after that? There was a song, a dance. Miriam and all the women gathered together and began to dance. And it said that they had tambourines. I'll guarantee you, if you look at any kind of history regarding the, the, the worship, or not even just the worship, but the music and the sound of the slaves before the Exodus, it was not celebrative. 
It was not celebratory. All of a sudden, because of the, victor- of the victory that God had brought to them in that moment, there was a sound that came out. A sound of victory, a sound of celebration. Okay, another story, and I've used this story uh, quite a number of times, but it's the story of Jehoshaphat in uh, 2 Chronicles 20, or 1 Chronicles 20. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's in the Bible. <laughs> King Jehoshaphat, he gets this letter from this massive army that's coming against him. He doesn't know what to do. He gathers the people. They, they set themselves before the Lord, seeking God, seeking his answer, and a prophet comes and says, the battle is not yours. It belongs to the Lord. It's interesting to me, the next day at the battle, they send out the singers and the worshipers. And they're singing a song. And it says that when they began to sing, when they began to tehillah, when they began to sing out that prophetic, unrehearsed song, that spontaneous song, that the Lord set ambushes against the enemy, okay? And they destroyed themselves. Interesting how normally people, when they hear the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not yours, it belongs to the Lord. They would just sit back and watch. But what was it that triggered the move of the Lord, the ambushes? It was a song. It was a sound, okay? I've done a little study on the tabernacle of David. The tabernacle of David was when, you know, King David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and he danced, you know, unashamed before the Lord. And just outside of Jerusalem's walls, there was Mount Zion, and they simply just got a tent, and they put the Ark of the Covenant in the tent. And from that moment, there were 288 musicians that were set apart, designated to offer up a nonstop sound, a nonstop, uh, nonstop worship before the Lord for 33 years, folks. 33 years, nonstop worship. Can you imagine that? And it's interesting how when you read in the Psalms, a lot of these Psalms were birthed out of those, out of that 33 years. Um, But when you read the Psalms, you know, you have a Psalm 50, Psalm 58, Psalm 3, you know, all that. And underneath that, usually there's like a little bit of an instruction to the chief musician. You know, there's a mictum of David or a mashkil or uh, some various different kinds of words. And there were different textures of sound that David discovered. One of them, for instance, was, uh, it's, a, it's a term called neganoth. Neganoth. And what neganoth means is that there's, there's a way to play a stringed instrument. Usually they played harps or lyres or those kinds of things. Uh, when they would play it, they would play it with a plectrum, a pick, or with their fingers, okay? With a pick, it meant that you would play it one string at a time. But there was greater anointing when you would play with the fingers, Many historians, including Josephus, all agree that that term, Naganoth, actually means it's the sound of healing. Did you know that there is a sound of healing? I'll give you an example. 1 Samuel 16, 23, where it talks about how David played before King Saul. King Saul was distressed by the spirit. And it says that when David played skillfully, before Saul, that the Spirit left him. That word played is the Hebrew word negin, which is a derivative of neganoth. So it implies 
that David simply just played with his fingers. There's great anointing when a musician... I'd love to show you an example. I don't have my guitar with me, but there's, there's something happens whenever I strum the guitar with a pick, all the strings, as opposed to when I'm playing with my fingers. I don't know, I can't, I can't explain it to you, but there's just something that happens with that sound. And that's exactly what happened with, with Saul. A musician came along, played skillfully, Nagin, offered up the sound of healing, and Saul was healed. Even if you look at our, at our American history, you have during the Civil War, uh, during the Civil War era, the 1800s, mid-1800s, you had the songs of the slaves. They would call them spirituals. Okay? Slavery is obviously a very dark, dark part of our, of our history um, in the United States of America. But I'll tell you what, God was directly involved with it because the Emancipation Proclamation that happened in 18, was it 60, 60 I, I think it was 63? Somebody help me. <laughs> 62, 63? It's in that ballpark, right? Yeah, all right, 1863. There were certain songs that the slaves would sing, and it was a call and response, certain ones, certain spirituals. For instance, like Jacob's Ladder. Maybe some of you have heard some of these songs. Or another one, uh, Go, Down, uh, Go Down Moses. Okay? When you look at those, they, they obviously take stories from Scripture. Um, granted, they're not ex- entirely theologically correct. <laughs> but nevertheless, the, the meaning of the songs when the slaves would sing them Historians would say that these songs depicted their escape from slavery. The song Jacob's Ladder was written in 1825. The Emancipation Proclamation happened in 1863, around that time. Is it any coincidence that these people were singing a song that led to their ultimate freedom, that led to their deliverance? You see, the spirituals, the more I look into the history of it, I see the spiritual content behind it. I don't think those songs were just songs that they sang on the chain gang. Those were prophetic songs that they were declaring for their future. With every fresh move of God, there is a sound attached to it. So folks... Sing it out. Sing it out. Don't, don't, don't belittle the obedience of doing something that's as simple as singing. Oftentimes it's, oh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't sing very well. I don't know how to sing. I'll just leave that to the musicians, so forth, so forth. No, no. People just don't sing anymore. Singing is more about entertainment now. Whereas in the Bible times and even just a century ago, a little over a century ago, singing had 
a spiritual context to it. One of the worst things that happened, one of the best things and one of the worst things that happened was the commercialization of music in the 1920s. It was the best thing because we could all hear the sounds of the different regions of our nation and even of the world. But it became one of the worst things because now nobody, nobody sings. They can go buy a song. They don't sing their song. They go buy a song. The fresh move of God, the wine in the wineskin, that's the treasure. Let's sing it out. Send it. Send the song. Amen? Can you stand with me? I love what God has done in this church. I love what God has done in this church. I grew up in this church as a kid. We went to North Carolina, came back here, and when the Lord showed me that I was going to be working here after college, I, I was overjoyed because I knew, I knew what had happened in this church, as many of you do as well. God is doing a new thing. He's not doing the next thing. He's doing a new thing. Let's posture our hearts in such a way to where we jump in the river and we just don't sit on the, or stand on the banks of the river watching the new fresh move of God pass us by. Can I pray over us this morning or this afternoon? Lord, we're just so thankful that your word says that the work that you started in us, you are faithful to complete it and that you are not slack regarding your promises. So Lord, we look to you right now. Let our hearts, let our, let our spiritual eyes be opened. Let our spiritual eyes to be open to discern the times, to discern the season that we're in right now, to recognize the fresh move that you are bringing forward. And Lord, we want to partner with you. That's our heart. We want to partner with you to bring your kingdom to earth, to let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, let us, let us recognize, let us perceive let us begin to see more into your heart for what you are doing right now. And Lord, I thank you for bravery. I thank you for courage. I thank you for faith to rise up. Lord, that we wouldn't just get stuck with what we've known. But Lord, we would be, we would be courageous enough to look beyond into the horizon and to cross into the new territory. Lord, even as the Israelites, when they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, that was the moment when you, uh, when you started doing miracles through them, not just to them. Lord, that's our heart. We want to partner with you. And Lord, I thank you for each and every person in this room, each and every person that is in this church, that you have us here in this house for such a time as this. 
Reveal your heart more and more to us, Lord, as we pursue you in worship, as we dive into you more. And Lord, we look forward to seeing the glory, to seeing the glory that will be given to your name because of all the things that happen through this fresh new move. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen.